0: yeah what's up everybody how are we Whitney can sing a little bit can't she a little bit a little bit awesome hey uh, so great to be back here with you all I've been uh I've been having a kind of a crazy fall. I did two weeks of men's retreats for Flatirons, a women's conference, taught a couple weekends here, then hopped on a plane, flew to Uganda, did a, a men's retreat for about 60 Ugandan pastors over there, uh, came back home for a couple days, and then flew to Florida to do a men's retreat for another church over there, and now I'm, now I'm back here, and I'm just really, really glad to be home and planning on staying here for a while. Thank that, Thank you. And, um, It's been really cool, though, because we say around here all the time that God doesn't do anything in isolation, and I'm able to kind of report back to you that uh, God is doing something here, but he's also doing that same thing in the hearts of people all around the world. And one of the things that really struck me while we were in Uganda, I went with a team of eight men from from this church, was simply this, that uh, when the men on our team kind of opened up to these these 60 Ugandan pastors and kind of shared with them their, their struggles and their wounds and their scars and their worries and their fears and their stories and all those kinds of things. That's a very rare and strange thing in Uganda. That's not a normal thing for men to kind of open up and share and be honest about what's going on in their lives. But when the men on our team went first, that created this opportunity for those men to kind of let their guard down and do the exact same thing. In other words, what we talk about around here all the time, what was created over there was a Me Too environment. And one day in particular, it was really, really poignant. All the men on our team, I asked them to share just a few minutes with at this retreat a little bit of about their story, the guys on our team. Just take three or four minutes, share your story, and specifically, I want, wanted them to share kind of uh, their experience as a father or their experience as a, as a son, and so a lot of the guys on our team decided to talk about their relationship with their, with their fathers and how their relationship with their dad had marked them for good or for bad, and later that afternoon, uh, one of the Ugandan men uh, wanted to share their story as well, and so he got up in front of all of us, and he started to tell us uh, about how when he was growing up, he grew up with an abusive father who beat his mom and beat him and, and beat his siblings, and oftentimes his dad would uh, get very, very drunk and chase him out of the house, and this man had these vivid memories of having to sleep outside in the rain all night long because he was afraid to go to go home because he didn't know what would happen if he did, and then he started to tell of one specific experience where, where his father chased him out of the house and beat him with a stick, and then, and then this man, he, he started to unbutton his shirt in front of us, and he kind of pulled his shirt back, and he revealed this scar, which he revealed were the teeth marks from where his dad had bitten him when he was a child. And we're all sitting there in silence and... Watching as this brave man revealed his wound, literally his his scar, and then what he did for us was he traced the trajectory of that scar. In other words, how that like affected the rest of his life. And what I mean by that is simply this: I'm I'm reading a book right now, or I just finished it by by an author that I used to read a lot many years ago, named Frederick Beekner, and in his book called "Telling Secrets," he reflects on another book he he wrote once called Godric, which was a novel. And the main character uh, Godric in that novel recounts a moment where he's heading out on a journey and he le- he's leaving his father's home for the first time in his life. He's, he's leaving that behind. And his father's standing there uh, waving goodbye to him. And Godric reflects on that moment like this. He says, I believe my way went from that hand as a path goes from a door. And though many a mile that way has led me since, with many a turn and crossroad in between, if ever I should trace it back, it's to my father's hand that it would lead translation, a lot of us know this to be true, that for good or for bad, our fathers have a profound effect on the impact and the trajectory of our lives for good or for bad and so that was the story of this ugandan man it was an all too familiar story when he got married when he had children he was a hurt person who turned around and hurt people and so when he got married he beat his wife and he beat his children and then he became a follower of jesus a couple years ago and it's not been an easy process of being rewired to to learn a whole new way of relating to his wife and to his children it's been painful it's been difficult but it's been better and you could sense in that room in that moment when he unbuttoned his shirt and showed us his scars he was met with something in that moment that was very profound you could almost sense like it was the first time he'd ever encountered it grace and mercy grace and mercy in a room full of men who knew his story and identified with it because in many ways it was, it was their story as well, and you could sense that man had wanted to reveal his woundedness and his scar for a long, long time, and in the moment that he did it, he was free from it. That lo- it lost its power over him, and if you've been tracking with us in this series, you know that's where we left off last week when Jim delivered this really powerful message where he challenged us at the end to reveal our wounds and to reveal our scars, and if you weren't here last week, go back and listen online because it was an amazing moment, but a difficult moment for sure. As we left off with that challenge and we left off in a garden, if you remember this, where Adam and Eve were once a very, very good thing. They had a very, very perfect thing, but now it's gone very, very wrong. This man and woman who were once naked and unashamed are now hiding and desperately trying to cover up because if they are anything at all, They are now ashamed and they've listened to all the wrong voices and they've been identified by someone who had no right to identify them. They're blaming everyone and everything around them as opposed to taking responsibility for their sin. In short, at this point in the story, everything is all screwed up. And that describes the point in the story that a lot of our marriages are in right now. Far too many relationships, far too many churches, far too many families, far too many people are in that place right now. And we left off last week with this, the way back to what God intended for us is to do the opposite of what Adam and Eve did when they, when they sinned. Remember what they did? They, 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 they tried to cover up, they, they hide, and they blame each other. That, that's what they do. And so Jim left us with this last week, the way back to what God intended is simply this, stop covering it up. Bring everything into the open and have a hard conversation. And finally, take responsibility and stop blaming others for your sin. Now, that's nice and neat and it seems like a very simple three-step process, but I'm here to tell you that's the scariest thing that you will ever do in your entire life. I'm convinced of it because I've been there, done that recently. Here's the thing, I've, I have never had a desire to jump out of a perfectly good airplane like some of you have, have done. I've, I've had many opportunities over the course of my life, friends who said, let's go skydiving. I'm like, That's, that sounds stupid. No, I'd rather, I'd rather not do that. But if you would have given me the opportunity to jump out of an airplane in the moment where I looked at somebody and said, the thing that I don't want you to know about me is, and then I filled in the blank, if you would have given me a chance to jump out of an airplane or finish the sentence in that moment, I would have rather jumped out of the airplane. Because that is the scariest thing that you will ever do, but it's also the most freeing thing you will ever do when you say that out loud in front of another human being. Because after perhaps a lifetime of trying to do what you cannot do, which is to do what Adam and Eve tried to do, which is to cover it up, deal with it, handle it, and carry it, when you finally acknowledge that you know what that process is? Exhausting and impossible. And you finally admit that you can't do it, there is such freedom in that. It's, it's absolutely indescribable, to be honest with you. It's just something you have to experience to know to be true. I mean, think about it with Adam and Eve and their attempts to cover it up. And what did they do when they sinned and when they wrecked their lives? If, if you got your Bibles, go back to where we left off last week, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. It's like page 2 of your Bible. Free Bibles in the back. it be in your program. Be on the screens as well. But they, so they've sinned. They messed up. They, they didn't trust God anymore. They thought they had a better way. And so this is what it leaves them with. Look at Genesis three verse. 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, there's a lot of implications of that, but I want you to think about one of the practical implications of that. The way that they tried to cover up their nakedness was by sewing fig leaves together. How effective do you think that process was? How tedious do you think that process was? How well do you think that worked for them? No, it's, it's silly. It's foolish. It seems, it seems like a really ridiculous thing to do. Now listen, their attempts at covering up their nakedness by sewing fig leaves together are just a metaphor for all of our vain efforts to deal and handle and carry and hide our shame. Those are just desperate, ineffective attempts to cover something we can't cover, to handle something we can't handle, to carry something we can't carry, namely our shame. So the question becomes, well, what do we do with it? And the beautiful thing is this. In the story of Adam and Eve, there's this beautiful foreshadowing, this moment uh, where we get to see what is to come. God did something for Adam and Eve that they could not do for themselves. Look at what he does in Genesis 3, uh, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He clothed them. And he did that because because they couldn't do it for themselves and he did that by by killing an animal it's it's symbolic of it requires death to cover your shame a foreshadowing of what Jesus would one day do for us on a cross of how he would deal with our shame and our sin and our brokenness and our failures permanently what God did for Adam and Eve was what they could not do for themselves which by definition is grace and that's what Paul wrote about in his second letter to this church. We've been studying a little bit about the, the Corinthian church. In his second letter to them, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's dead. It's gone. Behold, the new has come. And then verse 21, my favorite is this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, through Jesus, we are made new. He takes away our sin. He takes away our shame. We are clothed and we are dressed and we are covered in his righteousness. And that's what I love about this song we're going to sing later on Christ's solid rock I stand. There's this, there's this line in there that says, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed In his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. One day when we stand before the throne of God, you do not want to stand there in the fig leaves of your vain attempts to try to become a good person in this life. You don't want to be standing there there before him with these fig leaves of being a good person, going to church and helping little old ladies across the street. That will not hold up in front of the almighty God. The only thing that will hold up in front of him is Jesus' righteousness covering our sin and our shame. That's all. So here's the thing, if you are here today and you're a follower of Jesus and you have that hope, that confidence, that joy of knowing that you don't have to hide from God, you don't have to desperately try to cover up your shame and your guilt, but he sees you better than anybody sees you and he knows you more deeply than anybody knows you And because Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave. It's been handled, it's been removed, and you're now dressed, you're now covered and clothed in Jesus' righteousness and you can stand unashamed before God. If you know all that, if that's all been taken care of, let me ask a really invasive question. What's stopping you from standing unashamed before another human being? I know the answer fear. Fear, followed quickly by shame and insecurity. Here's the thing I'm starting to realize. God has given us this this beautiful gift. It's what we've been talking about in this series so much. This one place where if there is no other place on earth where we should be able to be fully known, to be able to be really seen for who we are, and it's this beautiful thing called marriage. This one place on earth where one man and one woman can be naked and unashamed. Yet, at the same time, if I had to point to one thing on earth that's being destroyed, ruined, messed up, and screwed up more than anything else, I would say it's marriage, which is no surprised because the enemy first brought sin into this world by attacking a marriage and apparently his tactics haven't changed at all because it seems to be working so well for him he's messing up marriages to this day see there's this really strange tension in us that author Frederick Buechner explains it well he says the central paradox of our condition that we hunger for perhaps more than anything else is to be known in our full humanness Yet that is what we also fear more than anything else. I read that and thought, that is absolutely true. I think that's why a lot of us get married is because we really want, we want one person, one person if nobody else to really see who we really are and at the same time still accept us for who we are. One person we don't have to pretend with. One person we can let our guard down with. One person we don't have to put on an act for. One person we can really take off our mask and be who we really are. And yet as I speak those words out loud for many of us in this room, the very thought of doing that brings extreme fear. Why? Because there's that tension. While we want to be known, more than anything else we're afraid to be known more than anything else but look at what happens next in adam and eve's story after they leave the garden after sin and death have been brought into the world god still preserves something for them look at genesis 4 1 which says simply this now adam knew hang on to that word his wife he knew his wife Now that's referring to sexually, but it's way beyond that because there are other words used in the Old Testament for sex. But this word new, it's a verb that carries with it the idea of intimate knowledge, fully knowing and experiencing another person. It actually carries with it the idea of confessing. To be totally open to another person, literally naked and unashamed. In other words, that is still possible even with the presence of sin in this world and in our marriages and in our hearts and in our lives. The question becomes, how? Because that's not the reality that most of us live in. I mean, how could that be? Let's be honest. A lot of us in this room, we've been married for a really, really long time and that's not what we have. So how could it ever be any different and is there any hope that it ever could be? And I think the answer is resoundingly yes. And I, I think there's one huge key element that will put our feet on the path back to what God intended. And when I tell you what this is, a lot of you are going to roll your eyes and go, seriously, we got out of bed to come hear this? This is a very simple explanation. And it's this thing called friendship. Friendship. And, and here's what I mean. Um, this is kind of my story. All, Allie and I will be married for 14 years this December. And four years ago, at the time, we, we had three kids. Uh, now, now we got four. We finally figured out how that works. And uh, we... Um, <laughs> At the time, we were absolutely exhausted. The kids were really young, and we had always had in our mind to to take a vacation around the time of our 10th anniversary. And so so we did that. When we, when we went on that vacation, which again by definition means without children, all right, uh, we recognized a couple things. One is this. We were more tired than we, than we even realized because when you finally get that chance to kind of exhale and take a breath, it kind of hits you like a train just how tired you really, really are. And the second thing was this. We realized that our marriage had kind of digressed into somewhat of a partnership, kind of this shoulder to shoulder like let's go out and do this together, attack the world and accomplish tasks. And get things done, but we had kind of lost track of a face-to-face relationship. We had, we had fallen into kind of parenting mode where you have systems for everything. How, who's going to feed who in the middle of the night and who's going to deal with the vomit and who's going to change the diapers and who's going to pick up the kids from school and all that kind of thing. In other words, our, our, our relationship had become defined by the fact that we were the parents of, at the time, Landry, Eli, and Silas, but we had kind of lost track of being Scott and, and Allie. And to be honest with you, for the first 10 years of my marriage, I tended to view Allie as my sexual partner and the mother of my children. But, but I probably really, if you would have asked me, is she your friend? I would have looked at you funny like, what? No, she's my wife. My friendship really wasn't on my, on my radar. And to be perfectly honest with you, Allie and I had zero practice at being friends because when we started dating, we just immediately went into that infatuation zone that so many of us find ourselves in. We had absolutely no practice at being friends. We didn't even know how to do that. Now, I suspect that I'm not the only one. I won't ask you to raise your hand and say, me too. I'll just stand up here and take one for the team on this one. But last night, I asked for a show of hands and like two people, you know, raised their hand. I'm like, I forget that. Made me feel really good about myself, so... But I know you've been there, maybe you're there right now, where your marriage has turned into more of a business partnership, or maybe you're kind of like coworkers, where your, your identity is just simply as the parents of, or you've become kind of glorified roommates, where you share a mortgage and the bills and responsibilities, but you don't really share much else, and maybe you have sex, and maybe you don't, but you don't have much beyond that. And for the last four years, I can just tell you, for, for Allie and I, it's been this really challenging, really fun, difficult, and exciting journey of trying to figure out what it means to be best friends. And it started on that vacation as we sat there with, with time and space and lots of meals and drinks together just looking at each other finally face to face we got to I realized something that I thought was really really profound as I spent time with her I realized you know what I really like her I really like her like it's it's one thing to to love your spouse you kind of have to do that right but it's a whole other ball game to like your spouse Right? You can love somebody without liking them. All right? you're, you may have a house full of people this week and you're going, yeah, I love you, but boy. <laughs> right? I mean, it's very, very possible. It's very possible. Since then, we've, we've made more of kind of a concerted effort to kind of build and work on our friendship. And it's been really, really fun. It's been really, really sweet. I just wish it didn't take me the first decade of my marriage to figure that out. When I was in Uganda last month, I, uh, the older I get, the more prone I am to homesickness. And so it was like day seven or day eight, we're in Uganda, and I look at Dan, our men's pastor, and I go, you know, Dan, I really miss my kids, but you know what's interesting is I, I miss my wife even more. And he looks at me and point blank and goes, that's the way it should be. And I thought, that really struck me. And I thought, you know, I don't know that that's how it would be for most of us. This seems like a new thing for me. And here's the other thing that, that struck me. It's never too late to start. My friend Robert who's a pastor in Uganda, really taught me this while we were there. He's been married 22 years, has three kids, and he, he told me on the morning of the second day of our men's retreat, the day before we've been talking all about what it means to be a husband, and he told me that night he went home, and here's a man, he's been a pastor 22 years, and he's, he's, he's laying there in bed, and he tells me, I couldn't sleep last night, Scott, I was laying there in bed, and I was just looking at my wife, and I was thinking about all my shortcomings as a husband, and as a father, and how I haven't always been uh, who she needed me to be, but I was at the same time so grateful for her, and all the 20- Twenty-two years of our marriage and the friendship that we have and the, the children that we have and what a great mother she's been and all these kinds of things and I just I just felt compelled in that moment that I needed to tell her how thankful uh, I, I was I, I, I am for her and so he, go, he told me he's like so I, I, I woke her up and I thought that's a risky thing bro like I don't wake my wife up unless there's a fire like a big, it has to be a big one too it can't even be a small fire you know and he tries to wake her up, and of course, she thinks he wants sex, and so she starts waving him off, you know, and, and he goes, no, 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 listen, I just want to tell you something. I just want to tell you that I, I'm so grateful for you, and I love you so much, and I know that I haven't been the man that you needed me to be all the time, but from this point on, I really want to be that by the grace of God, and now you, you can go back to sleep. And I suspect the evening kept going from there, but I didn't ask. And so <laughs> he told me the next day, and I'm, I'm thinking... Here's a man who's been married longer than me, been a pastor longer than me, and he had the courage to say, from this point on, things will be different. So my question today is simply this. How can we rewire friendship back into our marriages from this point on? See, I think friendship is key because in some ways, friendship actually kind of takes the pressure off, right? Because we have, we've been kind of culturally conditioned to expect so much from our husband or from our wife, from our spouse. We, we, we've, we've been culturally conditioned to see that person as our soulmate, our all in all, the person who has to give us everything that we demand from them. And that's too much pressure for anybody to hold up under, right? Remember this, don't try to get from anyone or anything what you can only get from God. And the reality is whenever you demand that your husband and your wife be everything to you, that means you're putting them in the place of God in your life and guess what they're not God and they can't handle that pressure and if you put it on them that is a fast track to destroying your marriage no one can give you everything you need except for God but what they can do what your husband what your wife can be is your friend they can even be your best friend They can be a really safe place for you to be real and open and honest, to be fully known as much as another human being can fully know one another. But we have to deal with this problem in our marriages called unrealistic expectations because unrealistic expectations breed disappointment, and disappointment eventually breeds anger and bitterness and all kinds of other things. I mean, isn't that true? Put put marriage over here for a second. Just think about friendship. When you have a friendship with somebody and one friend puts unrealistic expectations on another friend, that is a fast track to destroying that friendship, right? Right? So, we have to deal with these unrealistic expectations. Your wife is not God. Your husband is not God. Now, please, please don't swing on the pendulum over here and just go, Yeah, I know her. She's got these terribly unrealistic expectations that I'd be uh, monogamous and stuff like that. No, wrong. She's got these terribly unrealistic expectations that he actually talked to me. You know, no, 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 no. That's not. What I'm talking about is putting a person in the place of God in your life. What I'm saying is simply this. Could, could we let each other off the mat for a minute? Could we? Could we recognize for a second about ourselves that we are daily in desperate need of God's grace, grace from God, but not only that, you know what we need? We need grace from one another. So the question becomes, how do we create that kind of atmosphere in our marriage, this atmosphere of friendship and grace and Jim and I, we, we had breakfast with a friend of ours named Jason uh, down in Denver a couple weeks ago. And he's a, he, he's a counselor and he, he deals with people's uh, marriages all the time. And he, he took out his iPad for us and he started like sketching out all this stuff for us. And he, he, what he was sketching out were basically kind of the way God has wired up intimacy to work. Kind of the basic building blocks of intimacy. And so he, he wrote down these four basic foundational things. Emotional, intellectual, spiritual, and recreational. And as he wrote those things down and started describing those and talking about those things, I started thinking to myself, well, those are true of not just marriage, those are true of just friends. That's true of a friendship. I mean, again, put, put marriage over here for a second. Think about friendship. With your close friends, there's some sort of emotional connection you have with them or they would not be your friends. You actually care about them, you care about what happens to them and likewise them with you. And a lot of times as friendship grows, that emotional connection grows over time. There's an intellectual connection you have with your friends. You have some sort of connection with them. There's things you like to talk about, things you like to discuss. Maybe you like to argue with them, whatever that is. There's some sort of spiritual connection. I mean, this is true for me. I've got, I've got good friends who are not christians and i've got really good friends who are christians and the reality is simply this my friendship with the folks in my life who are christians is much deeper by definition than my friendship with those who aren't because we share the same purpose and aim of our life and we share the same savior. That's a deeper level of connection that I have with them spiritually. Recreational. There's things you like to do with your friends, right? Hunt, shop, fish, work out, go to movies, go to dinner, go to ball games, concerts, whatever that is. There's things you like to do together. Now, on top of those four things, he wrote two more things. Touch and proximity. Now, again, keep this in the friend zone here for a second. Even, even if, uh, even if we're just talking about that awkward bro hug thing that us guys, you know, do. All right, you, friends, you touch your friends more than you touch strangers. I hope. All right. <laughs> if not, you're probably going to be in jail soon. All right. Because, but there's a there is a human need. To be touched in a non-sexual affirming way. And there's been enormous amounts of studies done on on babies where this is is absolutely true. You go to countries where they have these, these orphanages where they just throw babies in cribs and they're stacked to the ceiling. Those babies are often failure to thrive infants, not because they have any physical sickness, but because lack of touch has led to a physical sickness. We have a need to be Touched, and that's a that's a good thing all right then there's proximity just being near just being around each other you don't have to say anything you don't have to necessarily be doing anything together just being around each other helps wire up a, a friendship the reality is that we're about to walk into all these different parties and things like that we're gonna have over Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and all those kinds of things and when I'm in the same at the same party with some friends all right we don't have to all be sitting next to each other standing next to each other even talking to each other to kind of sync up our our brains with one another in some regard because when one of us gets stuck talking talking to someone that none of us wanted to get stuck talking to, all the others can just look at each other and recognize, huh, he got stuck, you know? You know what I'm talking about? And then you can make a decision whether you're going to be a good friend and bail him out or just sit there and just enjoy your evening, you know? (laughs) Either way, that's, that's kind of how that works. Now, again, remember Jason, as we're sitting there at breakfast, he, he's talking about intimacy and marriage, and so on the top of this whole thing, he writes this word sex, which is this mind, body, heart, and soul connection we've been talking about, right? And notice something else. This is the tip of the iceberg. All those other things, they can be present in a friendship, but it's only in marriage that sex is the culmination of all those things. It's right, really the fruit out of the soil that's already been nurtured and cultured. It's, it's only in marriage, this one man and one woman that's Sex can achieve its intended purpose of bringing all those things together with God's participation and with his seal of approval on it. Now, what I think we far too often do in the context of marriage is we don't really nurture all those other connections in marriage. And sometimes we'll try to keep sex in play and keep it involved in our marriage while not working on all those other things, which that can be be momentarily fulfilling, but it's far less than what God has in mind for us. See, this is not new news. C.S. Lewis wrote about this a long time ago in one of his books called The Four Loves. And he called it that because in the Greek language, there are four distinct words for love. We're kind of inhibited in English because we only have one word for love. It's love. And so consequently, we say things like, yeah, I really love pizza. And then you say, I really love my kids. It's like, well, it seems like there should be a difference there, right? In Greek, you're afforded that opportunity because there's at least four different words for love. And one of the things he talks about is this. He says, in sexual, which in Greek is eros love, you have naked bodies. In friendship, which in Greek is phileo love, you have naked personalities. Translation, anyone can take off their clothes and have sex. Congratulations. Congratulations. Not everybody can be naked and unashamed to fully know one another. The idea in marriage is to have both naked bodies and naked personalities. This is why emotional affairs rarely remain strictly emotional. Because strangely enough, God wired it up so that emotional intimacy paves the way to physical intimacy almost every time. So what that means is simply this, in the, in the context of marriage, if we want to really cultivate this friendship thing, we have to pursue all of those connections in marriage intentionally. So what I want to do with just the remainder of our time today is I just want to ask some, some hard questions about those different kind of co- components to, to being friends in the context of marriage. So think about emotionally. What are we doing each day to pursue one another's hearts? Ladies, let me, let me talk to you for a second. I'll be honest. This is really, really hard for most men. Not all men, but most men. I think it's one of the attacks of the enemy on us that this idea of opening up and sharing our feelings, sharing the inner workings of our mind and our heart is perhaps one of the most difficult things for a lot of us to actually do as men. Now, ladies, let me tell you, here's the, if you want to ensure that your husband not do this, just do one thing. Nag him continually to do this if you nag him continually to do this open up your heart with me share your soul share your feelings tell me what's going on in there if you do that over and over and over again you will notice the walls of his heart getting thicker and thicker and thicker and the more closed off he will be to you because that's just an overwhelming thing to most of us men in this room now men in this room let me just say it this way do you remember the first time you kissed a girl some of you are like, I'm still hoping for that. All right. right, So, so take, take my word for it on this one. All right. There's this moment right before you kiss a girl for the first time where you are, you're sweating, you are flushed, you are as nervous as you have ever been in your entire life. But then you make this decision, one, two, three, and you go for it. That's what it's like to have to share your feelings. You have to man up, make a decision and go for it. Now, Ladies, let me tell you something. Just like if in that moment where you first try to kiss a girl and she turns away and is repulsed and smacks you and runs away, that will scar a man for life. If in that moment that he opens up a little bit, he shares something that's going on in his heart and his mind and he puts his toe in the water of being vulnerable to you, if in that moment you laugh at him, condemn him, throw stones at him, worst thing you could ever do to a man, belittle him or make fun of him, guess what you will do? You will sever this wire. You will sever this connection. And it's highly unlikely that he will ever attempt to do it again. And maybe that right there will explain why there's such difficulty in emotionally connecting in some of our marriages. Maybe there's some forgiveness that needs to be asked for. Some grace that needs to be extended. Think about the intellectual connection. What are we we doing each day to pursue one another's minds? What are you learning? What are you reading? What are you excited about? What are you thinking about? Share those things with one another. Think about this spiritual connection, and let me take a time out and talk to all the single people in the room, and again, this is is something that's spoken about in the Bible, but is confirmed by person after person after person who tells me all the time, listen, Scott, if you ever have the opportunity to talk to a bunch of single people about what I've experienced in my life, please tell them this, and it's simply this. If you are a Christian, do not marry someone who's not. I could march person after person up here who would say, let me tell you about the pain and the difficulty in my life because I did that. Now, does that mean there's no hope if if you're in that? No, it doesn't mean that at all, but it simply means this. The Bible phrases it this way, don't be unequally yoked. And that doesn't mean that Christians and non-Christians are unequal. It simply means this. The, The metaphor, the picture being painted there is to be yoked together like a team of oxen pulling in the same direction. They have this great task and it works really, really beautifully if and only if you're pulling in the same direction for the same goal and for the same purpose. By definition, if your same goal, if your purpose, if your one aim in life is to follow Jesus and your spouse's is not that, if it's anything else, you will be signing yourself up for an incredible amount of pain and difficulty. Now, could could God change anybody? Does he change anybody? Does he do miraculous things? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean you should sign yourself up for pain and difficulty and then expect God to bail you out of the consequences. Can God heal a disease? Absolutely. Should you intentionally give yourself one? No. Now let's again think about this spiritual connection in the context of marriage now. The question becomes, how are you nurturing this connection with your spouse? And here's one simple step to try to take this week. Ask your wives, husbands, in the car, on the way home today. Maybe just say this. What do you sense God is currently doing in your life? What's he changing, shaping, working on you, challenging you with? And then you share that with her. And and if you go, I have no idea, say that if that's what's true. If you go, I don't even know if there is a God out there because I just can't even sense his presence. Say that. Be honest. Be open with one another. And think about this recreational connection. I mean, this is one I think we often overlook. What are, what are we doing together for fun? What are we doing together for fun? And as life gets more complex and busy and, and just overwhelming at times, we forget oftentimes in our marriages to do things that we like to do together or sometimes to sacrificially do something with your spouse that maybe you don't really like to do, but they really like to do. And I'll be honest, I'm terrible at this. terrible at this my wife's not a huge shopper but she does like to shop sometimes and I have I would rather stick a sharp stick in my eye than go shopping you will not see me out on Friday it will not happen all right and over the course of the past 17 years of being together right I've learned that if I make that experience of shopping together miserable enough on her she won't ask me to do it anymore so if you make loud, obnoxious noises and ride in the cart through the aisles and things like that, not only will she not want to shop with you, she won't even want anybody to know that she knows you, much less married to you. And so that's been my strategy, and then as I've recruited my four children into this strategy, rarely are we ever asked to go shopping with my wife. Now the reality is, could I self-sacrificially say, babe, let's, you know, let's go shopping, let's go shopping, shop for jeans or something like that. I, yeah, I can, it's not happening this week, so don't ask me next weekend if I did, all right? But maybe two weeks from now, okay? Now, this doesn't mean that you have to do everything together, but we should do some things together and find things you both like to do and do those together. Allie and I, we love to go out to eat together. We like food a lot. We, we love to try new places, and we like to do that without our children, and we like to hike, and we like to work out, and we like to play, and we like to, we love to see movies that aren't animated or made by Pixar. We love that, all right? <laughs> Find those things and do those things together. Now, think about this, this wire called touch. And not just overtly sexual, but what about this? This is a difficult one for a lot of men. Affection without expectation. Affection without expectation of escalation. That, man, that rhymes really well. I should brand that, all right? Uh, a hug, a kiss, a pat on the butt, whatever it is, without the expectation of escalation. It builds something. One of, one of the things I'm trying to do is um, I'm trying to, when I come home from work, I'm trying to make sure that my first hug and my first kiss go to my wife. And so oftentimes when I walk in the house, it's like a three-ring circus, so I have to like hurdle kids and throw them over my shoulder and carry three of them and then reach across the, the bar to, you know, to try to give Allie my first hug and kiss because I just, I just want my kids to see and know and her to see and know that she's my first priority. And there's this thing called proximity. How often are we around each other in everyday life? It simply means this. Whether you like it or not, your presence matters. You don't have to always be doing something or even talking about anything, but just physically being in the same room really makes a difference. And if that's absent in your marriage, it's going to hurt your friendship because while absence makes the heart grow fonder, eventually absence makes the heart grow bitter. Doesn't it? So find a space and a time that's like sacred, you in your marriage. Allie and I kind of stumbled into this accidentally. She, she's much more observant and perceptive than me. That's just, I'm sure you're shocked. And so she noticed that on Wednesdays, a lot of times I will come home from work with a bottle of wine. And she also is smart enough to put two and two together. She realized that on Thursday mornings, I don't go to the gym. It's my rest day. And so because on Thursday mornings, I don't have to get up at 4.30 in the morning like every other day of the week, I can actually stay up a little bit later on Wednesday night, which means I can make it all the way to maybe 9.30, all right? And... (laughs) So it's like, woohoo, party time, bottle of wine, let's stay up till 9.30, you know? And so she started referring to it as Wine Wednesday, and she started calling me and texting me on the way home, going, did you pick up wine for Wine Wednesday? And she picked up on this, and it's become this really cool tradition for us, where we put the kids to bed, and then we have a, a couple hours, where we just sit and we talk, or we watch a movie, or we watch a television show, or we just hang out in the same room, proximity together. It's intentional, regular time together, and it's become this really sweet, awesome tradition. I I was putting uh, Eli to bed this past Wednesday, and he goes, I know why you put us to bed so early. (laughs) Like, really? What (laughs) What do you mean by that? He's like, you and mom just want to party while we're asleep. I was like, that's exactly right. Good night, young man. Don't get up, you know. Now, as you're kind of working on all of that and pursuing all that in marriage, there's this awesome mind, body, heart, and soul connection called sex. And sex experienced while all of those other things are being cultivated and worked on, all of those things are being connected, all that's being wired up. Sex with all of those things is a whole other level of experience. I mean, sex without those things can be physically pleasing momentarily, but it is by definition much less than what God has in mind. And this component, this, this sexual component to marriage is really, really important. So much so that the Apostle Paul decided he was going to write about it to the Corinthian church because so many of them had such a, a messed up view of sex because of the enormous amounts of sexual baggage that they all brought to the table that when they became Christians and were married, they had such a negative view of sex. A lot of them were actually abstaining from sex even though they were married because they just had such a negative view of it. So this is what Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does and likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does, so do not deprive one another, in the Greek it actually reads like, like, do not deprive one another as some of you are doing, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control now, there's a lot of misuse verses in the Bible, these are at the top of the list. These get misused all the time. So if right now you were going, that's the one I've been looking for. And you were highlighting that because you're ready to use that verse as a weapon against your spouse. That indicates that you do not need to highlight that verse. You need to get your heart right with Jesus. Take a time out from sex with your spouse so that you can deal with your jacked up heart that you would want to manipulate your spouse into, into sex. Because listen, you need to understand something. The word authority that's used there when Paul says wives have authority over their husband's body and husbands have authority over their wife's body, that doesn't mean you have the right to demand sex whenever you want it for any reason. What it means is this, it means that wives and husbands have exclusive rights over one another's bodies. Over anyone or everyone else. In other words, no one else has the right to your body, only me. It doesn't mean you have the right to demand and manipulate your way into sex whenever you want. If you use these verses to further your lazy, sinful pursuit of your spouse's body without pursuing their heart and their mind and their soul, you might get their body, but you will not get anything else. And by definition, that will be far less than God's good gift that he has for you. See, we hear this a lot, and especially in the series. It's brought up a lot. We hear from husbands and wives. We hear from husbands complaining wives are withholding sex. And sometimes maybe that's because he isn't pursuing any other area of connection or of intimacy with his wife. And so she's going, if you're not going to see after my heart, you're not getting my body. And maybe he's still doing that. We hear this one all the time. Guys are going, man, I'm doing the best I can to cultivate all those things. And she's still withholding. Well, maybe, guys, she has some deep wounds and scars that are making it really hard for her to be intimate. But to be honest with you, we also hear a lot from wives complaining that husbands are withholding sex from them. And maybe that's because he has a deep struggle with pornography. We hear that one a whole lot. But maybe it's not that. Maybe, ladies, have you ever considered this? That maybe he has some deep wounds, some scars, making it really hard for him to be intimate with you. And it maybe doesn't have anything to do with you. It's something from his past. You, you know what? Is there sin mixed up in all of those different scenarios? Absolutely. There's sin all over the place. You know what will fix that? I don't know. I'll tell you what won't. Condemnation, shame, and blame won't fix it at all. You know what will? Jesus. You know what he brings to the table? Truth and grace. Jesus brings the opportunity to be open and honest and say, this is truly what's going on. This is my wound. This is my scar. This is, this is why I'm afraid. This is why I'm insecure. This is all of those different things. And then he provides the opportunity to show grace in the midst of that to one another. Now, here's the thing. A husband and a wife who are best friends and have been totally open and honest with one another about their wounds and their scars and their guilt and their shame, and they've given each other grace, they don't even need these verses from 1 Corinthians. They're like, thanks, Paul, did need that. Because that man and woman will either be having frequent and fulfilling sex or they'll be able to understand why they aren't and show each other grace in the midst of that listen being right doesn't change anyone you know what does grace your husband and your wife need grace just as desperately as you do All I know is this, when I stopped trying to pretend that I was big enough and strong enough to be my wife's savior, when I stopped pretending to be something I could never be and finally admitted that I'm just broken and ashamed and I'd been that way most of my life and she gave me grace and loved me still in the midst of that just as I am, that made our friendship and that made our marriage so much, to use the word from the song, stronger so much better because now I have proof that Ali has my back now again put marriage over here for a second just think about your best friendships that you have the best friendships that you have are defined by the fact that you know they have your back I got some friends in my life that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt if I called them in the middle of the night and said listen I need you they would be there if someone or something was coming after me, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, those guys would be fighting for me, not against me, because they are for me, not against me. Now, how many of our marriages are that way? I suspect a lot of us are way better friends than we are spouses. So here are our challenges for today. We said we would do this every week, so, so here we go. Truth. The truth is this. God has designed marriage to be a place to be fully exposed, naked and unashamed, and that is still possible problem is secrets keep you from experiencing that they block that out they do so if you were hoping man let's quit talking about the secret thing sorry to bring it up again confession we haven't done this right none of us have And friendship, for many of us, has not even been on our radar. Let's just be honest about that. That's just true. Let's be open about it, all right? Repentance, okay? You want something different? Well, then the way back to what God had in mind for both spouses is to turn back to him and in so doing, find one another. Your job is to turn your face back to God and walk towards him. It's not your job to make your spouse do it. Hopefully, they will. And if they do, that's a beautiful moment when you get to turn to your side and realize they're on this journey with you, too. And if they don't, then by God's grace, he'll get you through that as well. Grace, God's grace is never ending. It's also empowering you to do what you cannot do by yourself. Finally, let's live differently. Let's live differently. In other words, by that grace, go and let each other off the mat. Let Jesus be Jesus. He's really good at his job. He's great at it. Let your wife be your wife. Let your husband be your husband. But don't hold shame and guilt and condemnation over one another. In other words, don't create an environment of fear. Look. Here's what God could have done in that garden. When Adam and Eve ran and they hid and they sewed fig leaves together and he kicked them out of the garden, you know what he could have done instead of clothing them? He could have said, you know what? Get out of my face. Keep working on covering up your sin and your shame. And when you do a better job at it, come back and and show yourself to me and I'll let you know if you're good enough or not. Keep sewing fig leaves together and I'll let you know when you've done a good job. He didn't do that. What did he do? He did for them what they could not do for themselves. He clothed them. He dealt with their sin. He dealt with their shame. Listen, when Jesus died on that cross, he not only took away your shame, he took away your need to shame other people. And that's a freeing thing. To live under the covering of Jesus' forgiveness and just let each other be forgiven people. And I believe this, that the God who raised Jesus from the dead can bring your marriage from death to life. On a day in history, Jesus went to a cross. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. And on a day in history, that broken body was raised to life. And if God can do that, there is nothing in your life that's impossible for him. So we're going to take communion right now, and we're going to remember that. We're going to remember what he did and why he did it to show us this thing called grace. Not just so that we could experience it for ourselves, but so that we could show it to one another. And it's only by God's grace that you and I could ever do something so profound as show grace to one another. Let's pray. God, we come before you and a lot of us, we are in the middle of a train wreck, of a life, of a marriage. Our hearts are just really messed up. We can't even trust our hearts. Hearts are deceiving us. We don't know where else to run or where else to go but to you, and we're not even, some of us in this room right now, we're not even sure you're there, but God, we, I just ask that for every broken, hurting person in this room, which I suspect is most of us, God, I pray that you'll show up right now, and you'll remind us of your grace, and your mercy, and the truth that you love us, and you know us fully and deeply, and yet you love us still. God, we want to stand on nothing else but your son Jesus, on Christ alone. We want to stand knowing that we're dressed in his righteousness, none of our vain attempts to try to cover up our shame and our guilt and our condemnation. And we don't want to stand there alone. We we want to stand there with someone else. So God, I pray that you'll heal up hearts, that you'll bind up wounds, that you'll cover up shame and that you'll rid us of our disgrace and all the other things that we carry around every day with us. God, we love you. Thanks for loving us first.